Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. I can't list them all because you can basically get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. So if you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click that subscribe button. You see that little sign in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen here. It says YouTube subscribe with arrows reminding you to subscribe to the channel if you have not already and click the bell for continued notifications. John Gill's eschatology. I've been asked about this topic in private and public uh, and there's one gentleman in particular that has <laughs> that's asked me for months now to do something on John Gill's uh, John Gill's eschatology and uh, I don't know if he would appreciate me uh, you know um, naming him so I, I will uh, I will refrain from doing that um, but brother here is an episode on John Gill's eschatology hopefully this is helpful you know one of the things that's been edifying for me in particular when considering Gill's um, really just Gill's commitment to biblical exegesis is that there's a certain transcendence in Gill that rides above a lot of the modern isms. And uh, Gill sticks, I think, much more closely to the pre-modern mindset that really causes him to bleed Bibline in his theology. And he he doesn't really he he kind of in some ways he anticipates modernity or what would come of modernity uh, in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. In other ways, he he doesn't at all. Uh, and you know he's in he's writing and, and and doing ministry in the eighteenth century. But sometimes reading Gill, you would think you're reading someone from the seventeenth or the sixteenth centuries. And so he's he's very refreshing. He, he's kind of like a voice crying out in the wilderness in the 18th century because, let's face it, by the time you get to the 18th century, you have um, really the fruits of modernity starting to, uh, to rear their rotten uh, stench. Um, you have kind of uh, Descartes and his... Um, idealisms kind of coming to the surface and then you have the enlightenment raging uh during this uh during this century and you have gill who is a relatively calm and collected voice that is proclaiming christian orthodoxy through it all and there are a couple of voices like this you know in the 18th century uh, um you know, a lot of people rag on on Jonathan Edwards, and there's there's things to criticize in Edwards, to be sure, um, and, and Gill as well. There's there's much to, there's a lot wanting in Gill, particularly is the the charges that you know he was a hyper Calvinist or at least had hyper Calvinist tendencies, and and you know then then Edwards uh, and um, kind of you know his rationalism, I guess you could call it, and. But a lot of these guys, you know, John Brown of Haddington, um, very scholastic systematician. Uh, you know, there, there, there are good voices. Edwards and Gill are among them. John Brown, 
uh, in the 18th century, uh, and they're a breath of fresh air to read. If, you're, if, you, if you like to read historical theology uh, like I do, uh, you get to the 18th century and you realize that the rich orthodoxy of the 17th century begins to really taper in that century. And so to pick somebody up like John Gill and, and read him, um, or, or even Edwards, um, you know, is, is really, is really a breath of fresh air. Of course, you get up to the 19th century and you've got, uh, Schleiermacher and liberalism and, and the enlightenment really begins to, um, well, rather, enlightenment assumptions really begin to boil to the surface at that point. And so, in many ways, the 18th century is, is kind of representative, in many ways, of a last holdout. Um, uh, Puritan orthodoxy really kind of comes to a close at the, at the beginning of the 18th century, the end of the 17th century. And so, there's, there's still a lot of Puritan fumes in the 18th century, whereas you get up to the 19th century, and those are are less and less. So, what what I would encourage before we even get into any of this, what I would encourage people to do is to get off the internet, listen to this first, <laughs> listen to my episode first. But in all seriousness, get off the internet, get out of the you know eschatological. Um, I guess you could say echo chambers that you, you that you might find yourself in on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, get out of that, detox from that for a little bit, and get into some historical theology. Uh, and what you'll realize is that what I've realized over the last you know few years, especially, is that a lot of times the isms, the modern isms whether it's dispensationalism or, you know, the three main isms of, es- of modern eschatology, amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, a lot of the times they don't neatly, you know, you're not able to neatly impose one or the other of those on pre-modern uh, figures. Um, you know, much less can you do it with the reformers of the post-Reformation Puritans, uh, and you really can't do it with Gill. And I think that's a breath of fresh air. It's a breath of fresh air because I think we're conditioned to think that we need to pick one of these isms or we are not, you know, we can't validate ourselves in any given, you know, position or opinion uh, or, or stripe. And, uh, and what you find out is when you, when you read the old dead guys is that you know, our, our modern isms often don't work. And, and, and so it cause it should cause us to ask the question, like how valid really are a lot of our isms? Um, and if they can't, if they can't fit on the pre-moderns, then why do, why do they fit on us so well? Um, and you either have to say, well, we've just, we're just better than them, uh, which I would, I would say no, we're not. We've we've throughout the course of the Enlightenment, we've lost much more than we think, and it, it really wasn't kind. The Enlightenment and modernity in general really hasn't been kind to Christian theology. So why would we think we are further along than you know someone living in the 17th or early 18th century? Um, th- there's 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 no real reason to believe that. I think when you begin looking at uh, the difference between the pre-moderns and the moderns, and especially the post-moderns, 
you, you realize like, you know, something's changed, something big. They got something that we don't get. Um, and so uh, why, why do the isms fit so well on us? Or why do we try to fit ourselves so well into the isms when it seems like these guys in the pre-modern era uh, don't fit very well in any of them? And so that's something to think about. I'm not saying that all isms are bad. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a, a helpful term that distinguishes your position from other positions. And in some ways, that's what amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism is for, is to just distinguish positions. But we have to be careful that we don't take those isms and, and, and make them to be standards in and of themselves. As if we just wake up one morning and think, you know, I want to be an amillennialist, so I, I need to, to read like an amillennialist. I need to do everything uh, like an amillennialist would do it so that I can maintain that, that marker of amillennialists. Well, that's not really how we should be doing, you know, our theology. And so I think it's helpful to, to, get, to get behind modernity and, uh, and, and see what was going on before. So w with Gill's eschatology... I've already kind of said what I wanted to say at the beginning of this video, which is don't let the isms fool you. Um, don't let the isms determine your eschatological understanding. Because here's the thing about eschatology, in some ways, in some ways, the word eschatology, or we might be able to say the locus, the Christian locus of eschatology, that area of doctrine, is synonymous with, with biblical theology. It's synonymous with a canonical study of the purpose of Scripture and the trajectory of divine revelation from Genesis to Revelation. And so, that being the case, uh, eschatology is often much more broad than just what's going to happen in the future. Eschatology really traces the trajectory of all divine revelation and really uh, attempts to discern what we would call the final cause or the teleology of divine revelation or at least the redemptive purpose of God. And so it, it flows throughout all of Scripture and, and in many ways— to, to do a study through Genesis is to do a study of eschatology. Let's put it that way. <laughs> because what you're doing in Genesis is, you, is you're really seeing what contextualizes the future, not the future just from us, but the future from Adam and Eve onward, right? And so uh, eschatology is a very broad um, study that encapsulates really how you approach the Bible as a whole, and it and it and it doesn't just deal with what's going to happen in the future. I think uh, you know our our categories have become confused because as moderns we think you know when we read the confession for example and and in the London the second London confession that the last chapter chapter 32 is is uh on last things I think um and uh and so we it, yeah it's on uh, of of the last judgment okay and so um, we, we read, you know, the last, or when, when we think about eschatology, we think, uh, the final things or the end things or the last things. What we have to realize is that, um, the pre-moderns are thinking about 
words like final and end in a different way than you and I would think about words like final or end. They're thinking about them in terms of final causality, the end or the, the ultimate intent for the redemptive economy. Uh, but when we read you know, words like end or final, we think, oh, what's going to happen in the future? Well, that's not what they meant back then. Um, and, and I don't think it's what, it's not even what scripture means, uh, when it talks about, you know, uh, last things or the end, uh, of this age or, or whatever. It uses words like teleology and, and, uh, eschatos and things like that. It really means, it really means the, the ultimate goal or purpose of the redemptive economy or of the, uh, of the, uh, new creation wrought by Christ. And so, um, Again, it has a much more all-encompassing scope than just what's going to happen in the future. And, as, and in many ways, we've reduced the study of eschatology down to that question. What is going to happen in the future from where I sit? And that what that has done is it's relativized eschatology, it's subjectivized eschatology, it's destroyed individual eschatology, and it has narrowed to a fault, uh, corporate or universal eschatology. And so, um, you know, there, there, there are problems. There's a lot of change that has occurred over the last couple hundred years um, that makes it difficult for us to conceive of how the pre-moderns were thinking about eschatology. And Gill is representative, I think, of how a, a pre-modern approach to Scripture really, really, how, how a pre-modern approach to Scripture would really approach uh, eschatology. And so I, 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 before I made this, I didn't, before I started recording, I didn't decide whether I, whether or not, I want to look at two basic things and I can't decide what to do first. We need to look at John Gill on the millennium, but we also need to look at the preterism of John Gill. Um, because these two things, uh, you know, you, you hear a lot. If you're if you're in the right circles, you hear um, a lot about historical premillennialism, and you'll you'll often hear John Gill's name used in relation to historical premillennialism. And then, you know, of course, then Gill gets thrown in with, you know, other kind of representatives of historical premillennialism, like. George Eldon Ladd, which I love Ladd. I think Ladd is a brilliant biblical theologian. Um, I don't agree with everything that he says. I don't agree with everything Gill says, but I'm just, for, uh, in terms of the historical question, oftentimes you get Gill lumped in with, you know, historical premillennialism. Um, but I think it would be more accurate to understand Gill's position as a stripe of historical premillennialism. I think that that would be fair. Um, but <laughs> don't let that, um, color your thinking about Gill such that you throw, automatically throw him in or lump him in with George Eldon Ladd and, and, um, and others who would represent historical premillennialism in a more, um, contemporary sense. Um, because there are, are some things about Gill's quote-unquote, historical premillennialism that would utterly shatter a contemporary author's view 
or understanding of what premillennialism is. It certainly wouldn't comport with dispensational premillennialism, so just get that out of your head at the outset. <laughs> this has nothing to do with dispensationalism, uh, and a dispensationalist would be r really hard-pressed to get on board with what Gill is doing uh, with his eschatology, beyond, of course, the, the millennium, which we'll look at here in a minute. So we need to look at two things. Gill's preterism, we'll do that by looking at Matthew 24, or his commentary on Matthew 24, and we need to look at the millennium. Now, I think, <clears throat> I don't want the I don't want the cart to drive the horse. And I think if we did the millennium first, we'd be letting the cart drive the horse. I think what we should do is get an idea of Gill's overall kind of approach to Scripture uh, or approach to the New Testament, and maybe it'll help us to understand also his, his angle on New Testament prophecy. And then that'll help us approach, that'll help us understand Gill's approach to the, to the millennium. So let's go ahead and begin with Matthew 24, uh, or Gill's understanding of Matthew 24, uh, and that'll kind of, I think, soften us up for the millennium. Um, now, I, I said that, you know, Gill was going to have very little commonality with, with dispensationalists, um, and, and this is the first line of evidence for that. Gill's entire understanding of Matthew 24, or I should say Gill's, Gill's interpretation of the entirety of Matthew 24 is preterist, which is to say that, in large part, Gill understands Matthew chapter 24 as being entirely past. He relegates it all to within the first century in terms of its fulfillment. Now, he may say things that would... Uh, that would indicate that he's open to and even believes in a dual fulfillment. So, for example, he would say, like, the destruction of Jerusalem is a picture of the ultimate conflagration uh, of the world that's going to take place at the return of Christ and things like that. So he, he's, he's not closed off to any kind of a dual fulfillment, in fact, argues for that. Um, but he would say on the level that Matthew 24 has already occurred, uh, at least in in a primary sense of fulfillment. Um, and so that would, I think that, I think that that would shock a lot of contemporary premillennialists. And I think that there are even premillennialists today who would accuse Gill of heresy. You know, they would say, you can't do that. You know, that's, that's, that's preterism, that's heresy. Um, Gill obviously is not a hyper-preterist. He's not a full preterist or anything like that. You know, he's <laughs> to, to, to be that, you would have to deny the future bodily resurrection. You'd have to deny the, uh, the, the final return of Christ. And, and you would have to, you'd have to do a bunch of stuff that, that would result in your classification as a final, uh, as a uh, full preterist. Gill's none of those things. But he does happen to believe that Matthew 24 is referring to things that would happen within the near term in relation to Christ's earthly ministry and the audience whom Christ addressed in Matthew 24. And so one of the things that we have to 
one of the things that we have to look at and 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 one of the things we have to observe in Gill's approach to scripture is in many ways he's just applying the historical grammatical hermeneutic. Uh, he's doing what many dispensationalists would argue we should do. And Gill is particularly well skilled at doing it. Um and one of my complaints with, uh, you know, a, a, a futurist reading of Matthew 24 would essentially be of what seems to be a violation of the historical grammatical hermeneutic. Because if you go to, to Matthew 24 and you see how it starts out, I don't want to make this, by the way, about my view of Matthew 24, but I'm just, I'm just, I want to illustrate the point here uh, and I th and so that we can understand what Gill's doing. When you look at the beginning of Matthew 24, verses 1 through 2, um, it, it, it begins by saying, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Okay, so he's talking. He's obviously talking about the destruction of Jerusalem there. But then in verse three, uh, we read: Now, as he sat on the Mount Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us, when will these things be?" Okay, so they're asking about verse two. They're asking about this destruction of Jerusalem, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So. Gill is interpreting chapter 24 in light of how the chapter begins. And so I don't think he can be faulted for that. Um, I, you know, I think when you, if you can read, you know, the first three verses of Matthew 24 and then immediately say that, you know, verse four onward is, is future to us. I think you have to, there has to be some dissonance there with regard to how the chapter starts um, you have to you have to interpret what follows from those questions being asked as Jesus answer to those questions. And if it's Jesus answer to those questions, then it has direct reference to do the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, all Gill's doing is is he's taking taking these these first three verses and and understanding the rest of the chapter in in light of them, which is not wrong. He's Employ, he's he's rightly applying or consistently applying the context. Um. So let's. What I would like to do is I, I just want to go through. I think the main point for us to 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 understand is that Gill sees Matthew twenty four as entirely past, and so he, you know, he he remarks on verses one through three. Um. He says, uh, he says, you know, commenting on verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down, he says, or broken, as Munster's Hebrew Gospel reads it, which prediction had a full and remarkable accomplishment, and which is not only attested by Josephus, who relates that both the city and temple were dug up and laid level with the ground, but also by other Jewish writers who tell us that on the ninth, of Ob, a day prepared for punishments, Turnus, Rufus, the wicked, plowed up the temple and all around about it to fulfill what, what is said, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Micah 3.12.
Yes, and to fulfill what Christ here says too, that not one stone should be left upon another, which a plow would not admit of. And that's on his commentary of the gospel according to Matthew uh, chapter 24, verse 2. Uh, and and the, uh, the question that the disciples pose to him is, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Gil says, this coming of his, the sign of which they inquire, is not to be understood of his coming a second time to judge the world. So he's not talking about his final coming at the last day but of his coming in his kingdom and glory, which they had observed him some little time before speak of, declaring that some present should not die till they saw it. And so Gill is obviously understanding this event described in Matthew 24 to be an event that will be witnessed by, the, by some of those who, who live at that time. And then he goes on, you know, between, you know, verses 4 to 7, he he divides those that text up into into four signs. Uh, there will be many false Christs, national upheaval, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, um, wars, and rumors of wars. So the the again, I I missed one. I think the the four signs will be many false Christs, wars, and rumors of wars, national upheaval, and then famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. And he says basically makes an argument that all four of those things happened before the destruction of the, of Jerusalem persecutions uh, verse 9 onward uh, the end of the Jewish nation state verse 14 verse 15 and then he gives instructions beginning in verse 16 onward uh, that the early Christians heeded and listened to and their lives were spared they fled to um, the mountains, and Gil says regarding regarding verse 16, when Jesus says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, he says, the Syriac and Persic versions read in the singular number into the mountain, and it is report that, reported that many of them did fly, particularly to Mount Libanus in Lebanon. Antiquity also states that at least some of those who, headed, who heeded Jesus' words fled to Petra, Lebanon to the north and Pella to the northeast of Jerusalem. Not Petra, sorry, Pella. Pella. Uh, so Lebanon to the north and Pella to the northeast of Jerusalem. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not going to go through the, the, the full, you know, his full commentary on Matthew 24, but I think the important, the important thing here is that he, he takes a preterist view of it. Now, I will contrast that because I, I, I've done a fair bit of, of, trying to compare Gill with some other, you know, authors, commentators. Uh, for example, both John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon um, will divide Matthew 24 in half, about in half. I think between Calvin and Spurgeon, they divide it in a different place from one another. So there, there's a little bit... Uh, a variance in the opinions in terms of where Matthew 24 ought to be divided, divided. But I think the most common view of Matthew 24 is that it's divided. Some of it has already happened. The latter half is about something that has yet to occur, and that would be more your um, Calvin and 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 Spurgeon. But but Gill just takes the whole of Matthew 24 and says, no, it's all already happened. And a lot of people take issue with that. Personally, 
not that it matters, you know, this is a video about Gil, it's not really about me, but just I would I would just qualify to positionalize myself. I'm not sure. I would I would tend toward dividing Matthew twenty four in half. Um, I definitely do not take a futurist reading of Matthew twenty four. I, I think the context is clear. It's gotta have reference to um Jesus historical audience. It's gotta have reference to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. Um but I don't know. The, the, you know, you read through the whole chapter, and, and sometimes you read it, and it makes more sense to see it uh, as something that's that's already occurred, and maybe that dual fulfillment is helpful as well to be able to see, you know, the majority of Matthew 24 fulfilled uh, on one level, but still looking toward an ultimate fulfillment on another. Uh, so it just depends uh, on on your study and the the extent to which you've been able to to study Matthew twenty four. I would tend toward I would tend toward dividing the chapter, but uh, you know uh, I I don't know I don't know that's not necessarily a hill I would I would die on either. So now that we understand that Gill is a partial preterist. Again, he's not a hyper preterist. Let's look at which which means that by the way, he 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 breaks from the contemporary the contemporary premillennialism. He doesn't fit within the contemporary ism of premillennialism. Uh because you'd be hard pressed to find a contemporary premillennialist who writes at a scholarly level uh, who would say all of Matthew 24 is fulfilled? Um, so he, Gill distinguish really distinguishes himself here. I think. Now he he's not he's not a wild card either um, because there were a lot of premillennialists who, in many ways, spoke like what we would understand to be postmillennialism and amillennialism today uh, in the Puritan era. Um, they 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 spoke of you know um, millennial reigns and and things like that uh, and so and they weren't afraid to do so just again they were just kind of trying to make sense of the text to the best of their ability and I think they were doing so quite honestly um, but but they also definitely were not what you would consider dispensationalists um, at all and so you know now. When I'm, you know, when I think of premillennialism, I don't think of dispensationalism at all. When I think of historical premillennialism, there is no necessary connection between historical premillennialism and dispensationalism. The historical guys, the old dead guys, just break that narrative. It doesn't, it just doesn't work when you get to them and you realize that um, their exegesis was leading them to belief in a, a future millennium, but also there was an optimistic view of the of the you know promotion of the gospel all around the world um and there wasn't this doom and gloom you know so there there's a lot of things there's a lot of narrative narrative obstacles um for our contemporary view of things in the 17th and 18th centuries so let's look at John Gill's view of the millennium um you know, and I've already I've already said this in in so many words, but but Gill's partial preterism, as we've seen in in the Matthew twenty four commentary, when considered alongside his his millennialism, 
seen in his commentary on Revelation in particular, and and then also he goes into he goes into a decent amount of detail in his body of of doctrinal and practical divinity. But when you consider both of those things, his 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 view of Matthew twenty four, his commentary on Revelation, what he has to say about the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign in his body of divinity, it's kind of a refreshing reminder that the modernisms don't necessarily bind one to a particular eschatological grid. And and I think that's what we have to be careful of because I think like modern dispensational premillennialism is a total grid. Uh, th- there's no way that's that that results from an inductive study of the Bible with a mere you know application of the historical grammatical hermeneutic. It's just for several different reasons. We won't get into it now. Um, you know there is there's some things that you know I think a lot of amillennialists. You know I read Sam Storms. Uh, his book, Kingdom Come, and you read him on on the millennium in Revelation, and it and it just kind of seems like there's a Passover, you know. There's it it's just not really dealt with, and so that's disappointing, you know. And then postmillennialists, in, in a lot of ways, uh, take a, a similar uh, approach to premillennialists. And with this kind of one-dimensional literalism uh, that forces the text into certain kinds of absurdities that I don't think the text itself really commits, um, and it just and it doesn't end up doing justice to the to the whole of of Revelation, because again, usually what happens is you get into an ism, and your goal becomes to defend the ism, and that's something we all have to watch out for, and. Uh, Gill doesn't do that, and so it's it's refreshing. Uh, he's not right about everything. I don't think he gets everything right by any stretch of the imagination. But it's it's nice to see someone, you know, actually uh, follow attempting to follow the text without you know holding high the the standard of their ism. And today we've gotten. To where we we just hold up the standard of our ism and say this is what we're going with and and the whole Bible really has to just bow to this commitment. And it's a a danger that we all face. But um, but Gill doesn't do that. And a lot of you know pre-modern minds don't do that. So it's a breath of fresh air to read the again read the old dead guys. Uh, get off social media and read. Um, but as far as I can tell, Gil, Gills just tries to honestly derive his eschatology from his exegesis. And so for, for Gill, the millennium in Revelation 20 is a literal 1,000-year period. But we have to make some important qualifications because when you say the millennium is a literal 1,000-year period, you're automatically put into the category of dispy premillennialism and that's just not uh, that's just not adequate. That's a caricature, or would be a caricature, and wouldn't be accurate to to the situation at hand. Um, the qualifications are these. So so Gill takes the view that Revelation twenty is a literal one thousand year period, so a, a real millennium that occurs in the future. Here are the qualifications. It's not a distinctly Jewish millennium. If you're a dispensationalist, you believe that the millennial reign is a distinctly Jewish millennium, that it has special reference to national Israel, that the church gets to participate in it as beneficiaries. But for Gill, 
this is not a distinctly Jewish millennium. It's a millennium for the church, the church in which Jews and Gentiles are united together in Christ, the church being the bride and body of Christ, and those who are in that bride and body being in union with him are also the objects of Christ's redemptive work. And so this is not a, a distinctly Jewish millennium. It's a distinctly Christian millennium. The other distinguishing mark is that Gill's view doesn't require things to get catastrophically worse immediately before the millennium begins. So whereas, you know, pretty much the standard dispensationalist take on what what occurs before the millennium gets here, before Christ returns, is that everything just kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. And while there's different ways of understanding uh, worse or better, you know, uh, there, there are different ways of understanding, you know, the progress of the gospel and, and things like that. Your modern post-millennial would, would tend to look for the progress of the gospel and social institutions, advancement of technology, and things of, things of that nature. Uh, for Gill, he sees an incredible amount of progress, but it doesn't happen in that sense. It happens in the sense that men and women are being saved by the gospel as the gospel goes forward, and there's a, a general kind of a universal um, you know, profession of the gospel uh, throughout all the world before uh, the return of Christ, <laughs> before the millennium. I'm telling you, this it breaks, Gill's eschatology breaks all the molds because he's not bound to an ism. He lived before all that. He lived before all that. So he's not, he's not, trying, to, he's not trying to meet an ism. He's, he's trying to mine the Bible for its goods. And, uh, and so, you know, the Bible says that, you know, Jesus is going to reign at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are made uh, his footstool. And so he would see that that indicates a, uh, a certain spiritual progression of the gospel or proliferation of the gospel throughout all the world. Um, it doesn't necessarily manifest in, in, you know, the utopian nations and things like that, but he, he does seem to give some political, Im tip a hat to some political import there. Uh, he talks about Christian princes, you know, going forth and taking over all of the, uh, you know, the kingdoms of the Antichrist religions like paganism, Islam, uh, and popery. So again, he's not he's not fitting in he's not fitting in the molds. Um, and then the other thing is contrary to dispensationalism, is that Gill's millennium, his understanding of the millennium, occurs on the new earth. So it doesn't occur on a pre-glorified earth. It occurs on the glorified earth. Uh, there's some qualification that that needs in and of itself because um, you, you, you have to deal with the fact that for Gill, the thousand years comes to an end in virtue of the resurrection of the unjust or the resurrection of the reprobate, at which point there's a general judgment. So you have to reconcile that. Uh, I don't think it's impossible to do, but that might be one issue for, for a lot of people. How can it be on the new earth when there's still going to be a resurrection of the reprobate and a general judgment? How could that be happening on the new earth um, would be a question. But we'll leave that uh, for for you guys 
uh, you guys can go and try to reconcile that on your own. So why let's so the, the last two things that I would like to talk about in this video we're already at 40 minutes. I knew this was going to be a longer one because there's a lot a lot involved here. Um, the last two things I would like to talk about is why does Gil insist on a literal millennium? Why why doesn't he just see it as an amillennialist would, beginning with the first coming of Christ, ending with the final return of Christ, uh, and a thousand years being a figurative number. Well, uh, one of the things that Gill says is, is, you know, it's specified with a definite article. It's, it's, you know, these thousand years or uh, the thousand years. And so because it's, it's specified with a definite article, it shouldn't be taken indefinitely, but definitely for just this numbers of number of years exactly as appears from their having the article prefixed to them is what he says, unquote. And so the definite article specifies the thousand years, which appears to remove ambiguity for its meaning. So it's a definite number in virtue of being specified by a definite article. Take that for what you will. Uh, you don't have to agree with it, but at least consider it. Uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of the grammatical reason why Gill insists on a literal thousand years, a literal millennium. Um, the next thing I'd like to talk about, and this will really be what takes us to the end, is is the nature of the kingdom and, and the millennium. So relating the, the kingdom here to, or the, relating the millennium here to the kingdom. When you read Gill, particularly when you read him in his body of practical and, or doctrinal and practical divinity, you read him on the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign in the doctrinal part of, of his body of divinity, you'll read some things that make you, that would make you think, well, he's a post-millennialist, right? And so again, the way our, our modern mind works is we want to fit him into a, we want to fit him into an ism that our modern age has invented. <laughs> and so we say, well, Gill says this or that, and so therefore he's a post-millennialist. And some have, you know, said that Gill's, Gill's a post-millennialist. Well, okay, but he's also a pre-millennialist. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you deal with that? Uh, people mistake would, might mistake Gill for a post-millennialist because of his view of the spiritual reign or the spiritual kingdom of Christ. So uh, I have the Primitive Baptist Library Edition 1977 edition of, of the body of doctrinal doctrinal and practical divinity and this and so this occurs on page 464 I don't know if that has any meaning to you but it but it it occurs in his section on the millennial kingdom um, and he argues for this extremely optimistic view of the spiritual advancement of Christ's reign uh, and I think this is what Again, this is one of the things that makes Gill's approach to Scripture charming, is because you know he's not he's not fixed to an ism. He breaks the modern conceptions uh, that we try to impose on everybody, you know. And so you, you hear conversations about, well, this or that Puritan was a premillennialist, or this or that Puritan was a postmillennialist, and all of this. Well, some of them you would classify as postmillennialists, but they also believed in a millennial reign, and uh, that's that's Gill. Might be someone like Keach as well. Um, 
again, they just don't fit in in the modern kind of the modern mindsets. Uh, there there is there is a very optimistic view of the spiritual kingdom in John Gill, and that spiritual kingdom really leads to uh, Christ's bodily reign on earth when he when he returns for the last time and returns for the second time, we might say. Um, and this and then that kingdom will take place in the millennium. So the spiritual reign of Christ begins at Christ's first coming, the completion of his work, his resurrection ascension into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that spiritual reign takes us all the way up to his millennial reign. All right, so he says, in his spiritual reign, Antichrist will be destroyed. So in his, Christ's, spiritual reign, Antichrist will be dis- be destroyed with the spirit or breath of Christ, his gospel. And with the brightness of his coming, that clear light which will attend his coming by the effusion of his spirit, which will be with such spiritual efficacy as to dispel darkness, pagan, papal, and Mahometan or Islamic. And cause an, an universal reception, a universal reception of the gospel, which will open the way for the Christian princes to carry their victorious arms everywhere and seize upon and possess all the anti-Christian states. Right. All right. So there's a lot there in that one paragraph. Again, that, that right there comes from a body of doctrinal and practical divinity. Page 464, that Primitive Baptist Library edition I, I told you about. Um, there's a lot right there that breaks all the that breaks all the it breaks all the molds. Because number one, you have uh, a premillennialist. In other words, he's he's saying that Christ will he he believes that Christ will come back at the beginning or before the uh, the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So that's pre-millennialism. But here he's also saying that there's going to be this victorious outcome of the current reign of Christ from heaven, namely the spiritual reign that occurs through means of the gospel. And as the gospel spreads throughout all the world, people would be brought to Christ, added to this spiritual kingdom, and and eventually everybody's there's going to be a general profession of Christianity throughout all the world. Now, you can you can take issue with that and and I may take issue with that at at in some ways um I don't I wouldn't want to stick my flag in the sand and say this is going to happen for certain um but I but I I definitely do that any I I believe that anytime we we do missions we assume or at least we hope for that <laughs> we hope for that um and so you know in one sense we don't hope against truth we hope in line with the truth and in proportion with the truth and so why do we hope for the world to be discipled if it's just completely hopeless to consider that as a possibility uh that that's just that it's a, that it's a total impossibility that that's going to occur so I think there's an incredible practicable practicableness about this uh, in that, you know, this is a, a motivation for missions. Um, 
it's it's very hopeful that the gospel will go forward and will change the hearts of men by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, he, but he then goes on to imply, of course, and again, I don't want to interject my opinions too much into this. Uh, but then he goes on to to imply that political rulers will go forth and 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 take the anti-Christian states. I don't believe that Gill is advocating for a military, a Christian military offensive against anti-Christian states. I think what he means here is that, you know, these nations will be capsized by the gospel, essentially. Their paganism will be capsized by the gospel. And then, you know, uh, Christian nations will essentially... Uh, you know, take them over, not not by way of military, but by way of the fact that, you know, a pagan nation next to a Christian nation just became Christian, and so, um, you know, they're to be they're to be ruled accordingly. Uh, again, I don't want to impose too much of my opinion here, uh, but let's just say that that Gill was British. Uh, he was not uh, opposed to the crown or anything like that. So, um. You know, I think there may be some monarchialism that that goes into this, but at the same time, um, I do find the view refreshing in in the sense that he has no problem saying that you know the gospel is going to be victorious throughout the whole world. But here's here's the other thing I would I would just say, and I'm I'll, I'll get off this subject. I'll, I want to I want to systematize this and and wrap it up in a nice little red bow before we end, but. Even if things visually didn't pan out this way, Christ would still be victorious. Um, can we just say that? Uh, I mean, even if even if things didn't turn out the way we expected them to turn out, Christ would still be victorious. Uh, and, and I think that's very, very important for us to to confess that even if we get it wrong, Christ is still going to be victorious. Why? Because He's Lord over everything. Uh, and, and he, so there's, there's a purpose assigned to even the powers of darkness, uh, a purpose circumscribed to them such that even their actions, their deeds work for the good of the saints. And so Christ will still be victorious no matter what. Okay. Let's get off of that subject and we'll, we'll just go on to, to systemize, systematize this regarding the kingdom in relation to the millennium or the millennium in relation to the kingdom. Uh, a few points, five points here. First, the spiritual king for Gil, the spiritual kingdom began at the completion of Christ's work, resurrection, and ascent to the right hand of the Father. All right, so the spiritual kingdom begins, and this is what the amillennialist wants to observe, right? That there was a kingdom that was established and began, a reign of Christ that began at Christ's ascent, all right, uh, following the completion of his work, and so on. Uh, and so, again, here Gil kind of fits into the amillennialist conception of things. Secondly, the spiritual kingdom will be expanded through ordinary means of gospel proliferation. So there he kind of fits into the post-millennial vision of things. There's a there's an optimistic view of, of gospel progress throughout all the world. But then it'll culminate in Christ's bodily return to reign on the earth for a thousand years, and there he fits into the pre, pre-millennial mold, right? So here he's transcending all of our isms before our isms were even invented. Uh, 
and, and, and for that reason, agree or disagree with Gil, I think for that reason, he's very helpful and he's very useful and he's a breath of fresh air, should be read, and he needs to be dealt with more than he's, more than he's dealt with at present. Uh, the third thing, or, or the fourth thing, uh, at the point of Christ's bodily return, the old earth will be purified through conflagration and removal of all of Christ's enemies, and the resurrection of the just will occur at that time. All right, so the bodily resurrection will, will occur for those who were dead. They'll, their souls will be restored to their bodies. Uh, for those who are living at that time, they'll be changed, like Paul says. Uh, and Christ's enemies will be wiped off the face of the earth or what's left of them after the spiritual reign has its effect, right? There's still going to be enemies left and they'll be done away with and, and so on. And then fifthly, at the end of the millennium, there will be the resurrection of the reprobate and the general judgment. So that's the general general flow of, of Gill's millenarianism. Um, and and I hesitate to, 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 to speak any more about it because we're here at 53 minutes and I feel like I've just unloaded on all of you like a fire hose. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I've been hit by a fire hose. Anyway, we, we looked at... Gill's partial preterism, we did that in virtue of looking at cha uh, Matthew chapter 24, and then we looked at Gill's uh, view of the millennium, uh, which we've just systematized here for you. Um, I, I hope this was helpful. Agree, again, agree or disagree with Gill, um, <clears throat> good brothers are going to disagree on this, right? It's, it's just going to happen. It's happened throughout all church history. We shouldn't expect any different... Uh, here in the 21st century, but at least, at least let someone like Gill challenge you, and 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 read an author like Gill and wrestle with what he does with the text, because I because I think what he does is he is he helps get us out of the kind of modernist isms <clears throat> and the illusions we create for ourselves with those isms. And he brings us back to the text, and he and he confronts us with the text, and he basically says to us, "What are you going to do with this?" <laughs> and that's why, and that's why he, you know, some would characterize him. You know, you you look at some part of what he what he says, and he'll fit with the amillennialists. You look at another part of what he says, he'll fit with the postmillennialists. You look at what other, what else he says, like with regard to the millennium, he fits with the premillennialists. And he's what he's doing though. We might look at him as a modernist and say, how inconsistent. But actually what he's doing is he's challenging our consistency. He's challenging our consistency and he's challenging our isms. So hopefully this is helpful to you, not just in the sense of proposing to you another possible eschatological position. This is more than that. Hopefully he's helpful to you in the sense that he he arouses your sense of studiousness and your desire to... Uh, to wrestle with the text and, and to follow the text where it leads. Anyway, God bless you guys. Again, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, do so. Click the bell for continued notifications. Have a wonderful rest of your day.